gender politics can't really be addressed without thinking about the differences in how people react to problems. And in particular, how the different approaches of men and women affect both the causes of and solutions to these issues. HBR Talk with Hannah Wallen. Imagine you are going about your daily life when you discover that somehow a huge pile of crap has been dropped into your living environment, right where you can't avoid it, where it's going to be an inconvenience and an irritation to you as well as an eventual health threat. There are a few different types of people whose responses to this kind of development vary dramatically. There are two I want to look at specifically because of their impact on gender issues. The first responds with the question, what can I do about this? This type is more likely to assess the situation and grab a shovel or some other equipment to clean it up. Solving the problem will be at the top of their list of priorities, with care taken to avoid flinging crap around their environment in the process. If they need assistance, they may call for backup, but even if they don't get it, they will still do everything in their power to get the job done, because they don't have it in them to just leave that crap unaddressed. Cleanup will top their set of priorities, even if they also consider other concerns. Unless there's an obvious culprit to whom they can assign some of the work they're doing, blame won't even be on that list, because it won't help them do anything about the problem. Their main interest is getting the job done before that crap has much of a chance to affect the neighborhood. Men have always outnumbered women in the population exhibiting that response, though there have always been some women who responded in the same manner. Historically, there was more expectation of this from both sexes than there is today, but there has always been a higher expectation of this from men than there has been from women. Today, such responses have largely specialized into professions, but whether or not it's someone's job to deal with the crap in question, it'll still be mostly men showing up to handle it. As I said, there are some women who will do the same thing, assess the situation, grab the necessary equipment, and begin cleaning it up. Those who can't shovel will find practical ways to assist those who are. This group used to be a bigger portion of the female sex, but the living conditions under which girls grew up learning to do this have been nerfed to the point where most girls don't. It is becoming increasingly abnormal for women to respond this way to any crappy situation. So what are women more likely to do? The second type responds with the cry, someone should do something about this. People of this type will first respond emotionally, maybe complaining about the crappy situation, maybe victim signaling, but will not consider that they could be that someone. They will call for an authority or a specialized worker to do that, and they'll be increasingly distressed if that help isn't forthcoming. This population has always been, and still is, composed more of women than men, even as it has grown because of specialization within our communities. There was a time when cooperation between help-seeking reactors and practical reactors worked in terms of dealing with unexpected crap, with help-seeking existing mainly as a means to ensure the response of people who were capable of successful cleanup. Those not directly involved in it supported the effort of those who were. Today, most help-seeking reactors are just content to leave the big pile of crap for someone else to handle. They may feel incapable of dealing with it or they may have no idea what to do. Some are at least appreciative, and some will even label the practical reactors heroes. 
However, among the help seeker population is a help saboteur subset that will actually do things to make the situation worse, like prioritizing blame over cleanup, screeching at their neighbors like harpies while the crap sits in the sun and stinks. Some will make their living this way while peddling ideas, products, or services to mitigate secondary effects, but doing nothing about that big pile of crap that's causing them. Cleanup won't be a priority for them, because without all that crap, their work would no longer be needed. They may even try to hinder it out of fear of losing their own purpose. Often, female help saboteurs will resent female practical reactors in particular. They aren't willing to deal with this crap, but they feel outdone by women who are. They will tribalize their resentment and even belittle the cleanup effort and those involved in it in order to make themselves feel better about their own response. This may be their only participation in that process. At no point will they consider picking up a shovel. In fact, they will come up with nasty names and shaming for any woman who does, and for any man who associates with those women. Then, when confronted with the necessity of the cleanup and how most women have left it to men, they'll claim sexist attitudes among men caused women to be excluded. If, despite their indifference or interference, the mess is eliminated, the help saboteurs will try to take credit for cleaning it up, and they'll get really mad if you call their story a load of bullcrap. The difference between these two main types of response is part natural tendency, but also part social attitudes, as men are the ones a community will recruit to handle whatever crap it's facing. And if enough volunteers don't get involved, it's men who will be shamed for failing to help. Women don't often face that social pressure, so if they don't have a natural or circumstantial compulsion to deal with that crap, they have no compulsion at all. Meanwhile, society's protective attitude toward women facilitates help-seeking, while men, who are seen as society's natural protectors, may face shaming and ridicule when they seek help. This leaves us with communities that do not know when it is wrong to expect women to seek help or when they should expect men to do so. Women end up reticent to deal with their own crap even when they can, and men end up reticent to admit when they can't. With that in mind, what if the pile of crap in question has landed on and buried the community's men and boys? Can they call for help? If they do, who is going to respond and how? This week, HBR Talk will dig into the differences and how men and women react when the proverbial substance hits the rotating mechanical device, how that has changed as advancements in our civilization have made life easier, and why it's important for women to regain a sense of agency and a recognition of men's human needs in order for both sexes to be able to survive. The discussion streams on multiple platforms, but only when everything works. <laughs> Actually, no, then we just stream all of our mistakes when it doesn't. But hello, and uh, welcome to HBR Talk. 181 is female agency going to crap. I'm your host, Hannah Wallen, here with Nonsense Annihilator, Lauren B., and Badger-in-Chief, Allison Tiemann. And tonight we're going to dig into some crap that can be a little hard for society to deal with. But first, we've got to do what we've got to do. Honey Badger Radio has a ton of thought-provoking discussions, and those thoughts are getting more provoked every day as we discuss important topics. We stream on multiple platforms. The only way the thought police can affect us is to hide our work. To find it all without political censorship and without having to wade through a lot of social justice ideologues' baloney, you'll have to get that information from us. 
You want to hear from us more than you hear from them? Head on over to HoneyBadgerBrigade.com. Every show is uh, featured on HoneyBadgerBrigade.com, along with some great articles on a variety of topics. So head on over and check it out. Uh, we can't make YouTube give us fair treatment, but we can pick up their slack by bypassing the slackers altogether. And we can't stop corporate entities from engaging in political discrimination to prevent people like us from funding our efforts, but we can provide you an alternate way to support our work. That's why FeedTheBadger.com is the most stable way to help us out. FeedTheBadger provides a way to fund our efforts without funding politically correct censorship. So remember, folks, information is power. We have it. They hate it. If you want it, you've got to go to HoneyBadgerBrigade.com and check out the latest feed from the Badgers and Feed the Badger to uh, help make it possible for us to share the news and analysis you come to HBR to hear. So, uh, obviously none of what I pointed out in the opener is universal, but I think a lot of the problems uh, gender issues advocates in general address trace back to a general, pretty stark gender imbalance and social response to how people handle adverse situations. Piling on to that are feminist advocates who shame men for not emoting piteously enough when they face adversity, but then also shame them for objecting to conditions that hurt or harm them. What avenue have they left men with those mis mixed messages? Uh, none. <laughs> none. I, you know, it, it, it's, it's getting to the point where I, I really think that it's going to take something like, like a major natural disaster to happen so that, you know, we are forced, men and women are forced to learn how to cooperate with each other again, you know, and I, I, I just don't see how else it could happen because the only thing that is, is holding us back from each other is, you know, this, this need for one another. And once something major happens, like, like, a you know, who knows what, who knows what could happen, but... I think we we have been so isolated right like it's almost just like a, a a vestigial limb that's that's just worn off from people we don't know how to use that anymore we don't know how to cooperate well i'll take that back women don't seem to understand how to cooperate with the rest of society <laughs> Because it's always, you know, what I need and, and what every woman wants is something different. But Well if you I might if you mean by cooperate to set aside your own personal interests for the benefit of the overall group, well of course yeah. that's misogyny, Lauren. <laughs> How dare How dare you pick me? <laughs> <laughs> this is this is one that really gets to me too, uh, actually, what you just pointed out, Allison, because when you think in terms of real-life heroes, not just story heroes, but real-life heroes, real-life heroes, for the most part, are ordinary people who overcame extraordinary circumstances for the benefit of people they wanted to protect or provide for or assist or inform. You know, they wanted to do something to, um, to help the people around them. Like, real-life heroes are the people who when everyone else is running away from something, they're running at it to help the people that are stuck there. 
and uh, mm-hmm. and that's that's not necessarily. You know, you look at comic books and movies and and stories and everything. You have sort of a a superhuman type of superhero and a lot of a lot of uh, favorite stories. But in a lot of the older stories, and I'm not talking about like the Greek myths where you go right back into the superhuman, where where there are demigods and such, but just the the stories of um, uh, the human experience where somebody has done something extraordinary and in and the real life stories of the human experience where somebody has done something extraordinary um it 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 isn't necessarily a uh, a superhuman kind of thing it isn't necessarily people who are abnormal in their capabilities like they don't have greater physical strength and endurance and and so on they just are they have an inner toughness or a an extremely strong sense of responsibility for the people around them uh, and they they're exercising their agency and feminists complain all the time that female characters are not written well and that fe- there aren't enough female heroes in stories but we're not allowed to in real life much less in stories discuss and portray women as having the capacity to to exercise that level of personal agency and that level of uh, self-sacrifice, uh, so how are we supposed to how are we supposed to ever be heroes? And well, at the other end of it, how are we supposed to ever be helpful to men? And how are men supposed to get help? Hero actually means servant like the the translation of the word is servant so if you have no one to serve you're not a hero what you are is a villain and that's what most female characters who are overpowered are because they don't serve anyone but themselves captain marvel comes to mind Mm -hmm. um you know sometimes they get you know you get around that by having a character that's a female character that's doesn't serve anything but still remains uh, morally flawless or the narrative is distorted in such a way that she supposedly is morally flawless but she does things like start civil wars that destroy uh, you know 60 trillion people in a galaxy um you know it's, it's stuff like that. and then the narrative just contorts itself into a pretzel to show her as still a good good person despite the fact that she did something like this and um so we don't if we are incapable to have a conversation about what women should be responsible to and what women's responsibility looks like, then we're incapable of writing female heroes. And that you don't need to necessarily have a female hero who takes, you know, is a is a, a Captain Marvel who, who goes out and beats the shit out of a man who hits on her. Because, you know, being that deranged and so sociopathic is certainly yeah. a role model. Like, I don't, I've never understood that. Like, um... Why do people write female characters who get hit on and then respond with unbelievable levels of violence? Is that what maybe somebody could inform me what that is that that's so enticing about that? Yeah, I really is don't it, understand what's heroic about that. That's for sure. There's nothing heroic about <laughs> it. I wonder if it's maybe like a idea that oh yeah, this woman is really hard. Like she she prizes her sexuality. So if I get access to it, I'm like the the best man ever or something. Maybe that's the appeal for men. I don't know what the appeal is for women, but regardless, um, those characters are not heroic. They're sociopathic. Mm-hmm. 
And um, if you can't, if you can't have that conversation about responsibility and appropriate use of force, because you can't recognize the idea that women can use an inappropriate amount of force. And part of the problem with that is because we have this idea that no matter what a woman is does, she's justified on almost every single circumstance. So there's no way a woman can use an inappropriate level of force. And yet a lot of the hero narratives are about heroes learning when their force is inappropriate and atoning. Like, look, look at the labors of Hercules. That was all about him losing control of his strength and having to redeem himself through acts of self-sacrifice because he had an inappropriate use of force. Is there any story that you can think of where a female character engages in an inappropriate use of force and has to atone through acts of self-sacrifice. I'm trying to think. <laughs> no. yeah, not any of the not any of the great famous stories, that's for sure. You know, uh, it, and it's it's kind of um, I don't even know how to explain it, other than to say what what role models. Are little girls supposed to have uh, out of out of the spectrum of stories that are are labeled great and the the heroic characters that they're supposed to look at? What role models are they supposed to have uh, to to look at and say this is an extreme version of my values? Like we look at role models for men and boys in in a lot of old stories, they're they're basically um, a cross between, you know, a caricature and uh, a uh, an, a serious, I guess you could say a serious parody, uh, as opposed to a comical parody, where they're basically taking general values that, that men express and men are supposed to embrace, and they're, they're expressing them at an extreme level. Um, you know, great self-sacrifice and massive um service to others around them and uh so so they don't save just the damsel in distress they save the whole village or they save the whole kingdom and so on and i mean there are stories that are more simple than that you know obviously slice of life stories exist as well but when you look at it for every story where there's an i remember mama where you actually have a a, a girl in the in that play who had to learn that other people were more important than she was and her family connections and her her heritage and her uh heirlooms and things like that were more important than her frivolous interests you know her her physical appearance interests and things like that having what's in fashion and and so on um and she she grew up when she understood how hard her mother worked and how important it was for her mother to take care of the family and to make sure that the entire family unit was okay versus, uh, you know, herself and, and considering... Like, she in this story, for those who haven't read I Remember Mama or seen the movie or, or watched the play, um, this this girl's coming of age is essentially she's graduating from high school and for a graduation gift her mother wants to hand down an heirloom brooch that has been in the family for generations and it's a a way of her mother communicating your 
you know, one of the new matriarchs of the family, one of the people who is going to be the caregiver and and the um, the glue that holds the family together. And the girl wants this beauty set, right? That that she just wants it because it's what girls want at you know at that age. They want to look pretty and they want to date boys and they want to have something special that's just for them and so on. And all through the the play, you know, the kids are allowed to have coffee dipped in uh, uh, sugar cubes dipped in coffee. Um, to taste it and everything, but they're not allowed to drink coffee because drinking coffee is for grown-ups. And the 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 girl convinces her mother to get this set, this beauty set. Her mother pawns the brooch to get the beauty set, and uh, and then she feels bad about it. She realizes what she's done. She realizes that she has um, basically spit on her heritage and her her place in the world and and what would make her a hero to her family uh, as her mother is and she takes it back and she gets the brooch back and when uh she when she does that and and her mom realizes that she has learned the lesson of adulthood and you know her her um place in the family I guess her role in the family not as in a woman needs to know her place, but as in you are the hero of the, of the family as an adult woman, and your choices are are going to change because you're no longer a little girl and you no longer go for flip frivolous things. And this was a working class, like poor family. Um, that's when she got coffee. That's her mom communicated to her that she was an adult. And if you had a story like that today. Feminists would tear it apart. They probably hate that play because the girl had to learn that growing up means you don't get everything you want and that you have connections with people that you maintain through recognition of the value of the people around you and and the things in life that connect you to those people. Um, and that that was a huge aspect of growing up, and like feminists don't don't want women to have to recognize that the people around them are meaningful uh, to a degree that their experiences and their wishes can be more important than a woman's own interests, uh, especially if that woman's own interests are just this thing would make me feel good, as opposed to I need this to survive. I don't know if that makes sense, but when you look at that, and then you look at how feminists approach uh, men's issues, where we discuss um, men who are abused, or men who have um, experienced uh, things in life that have caused them to become depressed, or uh, develop a tendency toward self-injury or um, risk-taking that is dysfunctional, where they're they're not risking something for a great benefit; they're risking something because they don't care about themselves. Uh, you know, things like that. Rather than look at you know, what has happened to this guy, that what what is he missing that he needs, and what can I do to help him get what he needs? Uh, to 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 survive and to to do better to improve his his 
uh, situation, right, to, to uh, be helped. Um, they want to go straight for blame. Well, he's a man and he's just not emoting right. Well, he's a man and he, he can get out of this situation if he wants to. Well, he's a man, he probably uh, set her off. You know, it's, it's his fault she's abusing him. She's just doing it in preemptive self-defense. Or she's doing it because she feels disrespected. Um, but never, you know, he's, he's a victim of XYZ. He's a victim of this circumstance. Or even just, he's a human being in distress. Let's help him. It's, it's more like those aliens from uh, the, the parody of Star Trek. Uh, God, I can't think of the name of it now. Uh, with Tim Allen, where they, they're watching the aliens and and uh, the character Sigourney Weaver plays thinks the aliens are all cute and everything, and then all of a sudden they spring on the, the handicapped alien and, and tear him apart. Women react like that when a man is, is injured, right? When Galaxy Quest, thank you guys. Um, we had, like, two at once came through, Michael Keller and Conspira Conspiracy both... <laughs> Um, but yeah, Galaxy Quest, that, that, that's exactly what I think of how women respond to, to men's issues on, on a grand scale. And feminists are even more vicious. And at some point, we have to get women to recognize that they can't tear men apart because they're vulnerable. Uh, and we need to be able to go back to a time when women could recognize men's humanity. And when a man is vulnerable, that there would be women who would step up and protect him and help him, just like men do for women. Well, what you'll notice, I think, is, uh, and I'll, I'll take a, this in a little bit of a different direction, but when feminists in particular, but this is, this, I also see this among people who do not identify as feminists, yeah. although it's hard to differentiate between feminists and and. And people who don't identify as feminists but still think that feminism somehow invented men caring about women in the 1960s and that you know it was a horrible horrible satanic patriarchy for women but prior to that time and men just didn't care about them at all um i mean if you're if you're one of those people you basically are a feminist or at least you, you believe the problematic parts of feminism because you can i mean theoretically somebody could be like i'm a feminist and they've been raised on like an island in the south you know like south china sea and they haven't seen they, another they, human being for the last 50 years and they think feminism is is strictly equality you know they're just undiagnosed That's yeah it. yeah but it's like the problematic part of feminism like in a nutshell is its belief that it invented men caring about women in the 60s like it invented human nature and that you get rid of that belief and you know the 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 desire to see legal equality um as long as it comes with equal responsibilities or if there can't be equal responsibilities then there is uh legal perks for the group of people that can't that has to be held responsible more than the other group of people so as long as they come with equal responsibilities legal equality you know that's fine but it's this this horrible guilt trip of that feminism puts not just on men but also women who insist on you know not being feminist that somehow feminism is responsible for human beings the best parts of human nature like men caring about women when that's patently ridiculous 
But anyway, so this isn't something that only feminists do. This 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 way of of um of demanding a particular gender attitude, like a a, a strict di binary of gender attitudes, which is sometimes hilarious because at the same time as they demand a strict gender binary of attitudes and behaviors and approaches, they insist that they're doing so in a gender fluid way. So not only is their cosmology so black and white, you can't really call men and women the same existential entities. Like, like women are a substrate and men are people um, in their, in their cosmology. Not only that, that, that is it that strict, they're also insisting that they're somehow gender fluid, except they always need one gender to blame. So there's always one gender that has to be blamed. Well, you're, you're creating a gender dichotomy there. It's between the one you blame and the one's everything else. That's, that's a dichotomy, friends. That's an extreme one. But mm. anyway, so they're supporting this very strict gender roles in which all perception, all phenomenon in the world has to reduce down to men's actions. Does that, if that makes sense? Like everything has to reduce down to a man's moral decision and women's moral decisions cannot, cannot be perceived. And if you do perceive it, somehow it's misogyny. So if you, and it's, it's not like, it, like people are, are not necessarily, this is the extreme. This is the platonic extreme of this particular attitude. We all sort of exist somewhere along the line. But if a woman hits a man, a man must have done something to, do, to, to create the situation in which he hit or she hit him. Because everything must reduce down to the moral choices of a man. And this is, this is what these individuals are doing, which is hilarious because they talk about internalized patriarchy, but essentially all they're doing is, is going around and reducing everything they see to the moral decisions of a man. And then... In the process of reducing everything they see down to the moral decisions of the man, they say, I feel disempowered by patriarchy. <laughs> no yeah. friend, you are disempowered by your own, own somewhat mentally ill thoughts here. Mm -hmm. Because it can't be a good thing for a woman to go around and live her life perceiving herself as having no effective agency over anything in her life. And that's got to be some like this is this is feminine femininity like the feminine approach taken to a absolutely pathological extreme, um, and it's just like anyway. So they constantly eject their agency or their perception of the origin of the things in their life onto men, and. They, they, they develop this feeling of disempowerment and helplessness. Of course you do. I mean, if you, if you think that everything in your life is beyond your control, you're going to feel helpless. Mm -hmm. If you think that there is an evil or malevolent or even indifferent force in the world that can control your thoughts and actions... God, this sounds like such a mental illness. I'm sorry, feminist. Your, your entire belief system sounds like a mental illness. If yeah. you believe that there's some sort of sinister um, mojo, miasma, subatomic force, you know, like uh, aliens from 
Zena, Zena Reticuli or whatever, that are constantly beaming your decisions into your head and that you have absolutely no control, you are going to feel powerless. <laughs> and then, it's simultaneous to that, they're doing this to themselves and then they blame patriarchy for their feelings of powerlessness. Now, like, I think there's women who do that and they genuinely, like, it's not really a belief system, but they genuinely, like, schizophrenia isn't a belief system as far as I know. Um, paranoid delusions aren't a belief system. They're just uh, a compulsion, a mental illness. There are women who, who succumb to the mental illness that feminism represents. And then there are women who I think use it much more diabolically. And then there are women I would guess just don't even think about it much at all except to use it occasionally to give them their uh, their male male uh, people, the, the men in their lives a good good punch in the face to establish who's boss yeah. by um, moralizing. Oh, but the patriarchy means I win this argument. Because you're you're an immoral animal, and I am the true person in this exchange. You know that kind of thing. You know, there's a lot of women who just do that. They just they just borrow from feminist rhetoric in order to inflict pain on the men they supposedly love. Uh, so there, yeah. there's a, there's a variety here, but it's not just feminists who do this. It's not just feminists who enforce this gender role, this strict gender role in which everything has to be reduced down to the moral choices of a man, the moral agency of a man. So you see what I'm saying? Anyway, yeah, actually, uh, there's a there's a social social attitude, I guess you can say, um, of tolerance when women do this. Like men cannot get away with doing this. Women can get away with doing this, and and they do uh, all too frequently get away with doing exactly what you're talking about, um, and and they will continue to get away with it right up through the point of sitting in a courtroom. Uh, and and telling a judge, yes, I committed that crime, but the 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 man that I was with made me feel comfortable doing it, so it's his fault. He, uh, you know, it was it, it even if it was her idea, you know, he didn't stop me, so it's his fault, and he should have a longer sentence, and I should have a shorter sentence, and I'm gonna tell you all of the details of his agency in this situation, and it and it's. It actually works, the, where the judge ends up giving her a le lesser sentence because, obviously, if a man was involved in the commission of her crime, he was the uh, uh, mastermind, and she was just along for the ride. Um, so this is something, it, it isn't just feminists, it is women in general, and... It's a it's a bit of uh, scaffolding, of of ethical scaffolding that men have that women don't. Is that social uh, attitude of you made a decision, you acted on it, you have the agency to make that decision and to take that course of action, and it's your fault that you did that, right? So. Men have the knowledge with their with in terms of their decision making that they're going to be held responsible for their decision making because they learn that growing up as boys. Girls learn growing up that they can deflect responsibility for their actions onto boys onto uh social attitudes onto the people around them, 
in a whole variety of circumstances. So girls who don't have an internal scaffolding of ethics, that, that don't hold themselves responsible uh, without having somebody else come along and say, no, you're responsible. Uh, those girls are going to have an easier time basically being bad and, and feeling comfortable being bad than, than boys who might not have that same scaffolding because they don't have the external scaffolding to go uh, to, to make up for it. And I, I think we need to, um, we need to uh, find a way to create those heroes for girls. Like to basically increase the, you know, bring back the uh, recognition of girls in stories and women in stories like I Remember Mama that, that recognize I have to do things for other people if I want to be part of a community. If I just do things for myself, I might live in a community, but I'm not part of it, right? Because um, that's basically, that's step one of the pathway to be being a hero, even in a, on a small scale. And if we, don't, if we don't get to a point where girls grow up understanding that they are responsible when they make a choice and then act on it, uh, we, we are going to end up without communities. You can't have communities where half the people are exempt from responsibility for their own choices and that responsibility gets foisted off on the other half. That's not a community. That's a slave state. Can I just get something really quick in here about community? Yeah. The, the other aspect of it is women really define how people perceive uh, things. Like, the way that I, I d demonstrate that is I get you to imagine like a, the usual Hollywood movie, something happens and what they do, like some or a person is introduced or something happens. They, they have a shot of how a woman reacts in order to set how you're supposed to react to what just happened or to the person or whatever. Women determine how things are viewed. So if you have women in a community saying that community is racist, sexist, and you have to point it all out, you're not going to have a community for very long. And it's not going to be just because half of the community isn't pulling their weight. It's because the half of the community that literally makes the community an acceptable thing to fight for, to live in, to be part of, to build, to protect, to maintain, is they're not doing it. They're just decided that they aren't going to support that that perception that the community is right or that the community should exist not necessarily right but should exist you know that that's why women are the glue for families and communities and on a more abstract or philosophical level they also become the glue for nations and larger groups of people and guilds and i mean you if you if you ever go and you you you, ver, you take a trip and this is this is getting long so interrupt me if you want panna but if you ever go sometime and take a trip to uh, some of the old buildings and churches and uh, in like, for example, Europe, you'll notice that women are used as the foundation. Like you'll literally see a woman at the foundation of philosophical or economic or um, I don't know how to describe the, the guilds from the Middle Ages, but those kind of uh, class system concepts. So the women comprise the, the foundation of these cooperative 
endeavors that men engage in, which includes nations, includes guilds, it includes religions. They use women as a symbol of recognition and approval in order to facilitate this, this connection that, or this belief that the men who are in this cooperative endeavor are doing something for the overall benefit it's a powerful instinct that men have that women have ex or feminists have exploited to want to benefit women so how do you get men to cooperate well in a, a guild or a nation you represent that nation using a woman how do you get men to cooperate to create liberty for each other you represent liberty with a woman and then that becomes a powerful symbol of female approval for philosophical concepts and now you have the group of people who has that power the power of approval so you can approve of a nation, you can approve of a community, you can approve of a guild, you can approve of an economic structure, you can approve of anything. And it becomes something that men value and will cooperate to maintain. And that group of people is doing what? <laughs> right <You> know? now? <laughs> yeah. Right now, women are tearing society apart. Um, and in a way, because society has, because men in general have made women sort of the the moral compass for society um and they've they've made they've made women um I, you know society's diamonds you know we're we're highly valued uh we're basically the connection between everybody and we are uh we're loved right i would i would actually if you treat our civilization like the the existence of all humanity as a body you could say that there's a lot of details of our attitudes that might constitute you know things that we've come up with structures that we've come up with that might constitute different systems nervous systems circulatory systems um, you might consider men the the muscle tissue and the bone tissue of the human body like the humanity body women are the connective tissue and connective tissue is present in every system in your body. And without it, without it working properly, your body falls apart. Horrible things can happen with connective tissue disorders. Right? I have a mild connective di tissue disorder, and it has wreaked havoc on my entire body. And uh, everything... Like, there's not a single system of my body where something doesn't work right. Or where, the, where everything works right, I should say. There's not, there's not a single system in my body where that problem is absent. If you take that and, and translate it into um, humanity as a body and women as the connective tissue, you get the same thing. If women don't have the capacity or women fail to exercise their moral and ethical agency their ability to recognize both men and women people other than themselves their children um, their communities as equally or more important than themselves or even just as human the entire system gets wrecked we lose our communications, we lose our health, health system, we lose our education system, we lose our, uh, our cohesiveness as a society. And that is what is happening like right now in the United States. 
Mm-hmm. We currently have, we are, like I, I've talked about this, we're in a, in a civil war that we can't even call it a cold civil war. It's a hot civil war. This is, there are cities on fire. There are uh, occupied areas, right? This is a war between citizens and other citizens where the the military isn't engaged. And it's not engaged because citizens who who run local government have kept them out. Um, and that's the the people who are leaders in the two groups, Black Lives Matter and Antifa, that are engaging in the rioting and city burning and occupation of areas are women. It's women who are promoting the the anger and the opposition to our existing system and uh, to the the freedom and prosperity of the people of, of the nation, right? It's it's women who are saying we've got to get rid of our police forces and we've got to change everything and, and if you don't agree we're going to set fire to your downtown, right? So it really I is uh, a, a lack of cohesiveness and a um, a failure of our entire society to, to maintain uh, its connection with each other. They don't view the people that they have opposition to as human beings with their own spectrum of, of interests and needs and human rights. They view them as pawns that need to be manipulated to create a utopia that they have in mind that will work just as long as everybody says, everybody does what they say. And if it doesn't, it's everybody else's fault but their own. Yeah. I just wanted to point something out that might might blow up some, like, heads. Technically, if you look, if you take Black Lives Matter and Antifa at face value and the women in it, they are, in some ways essentially advocating or saying they advocate if you take them at face value for people who they think are more vulnerable than themselves so they're sort of doing the role of of a woman in advocating for a particular kind of social cohesion a particular kind of 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 respect or um concern for a particular kind of weakness this is this is what i i'm seeing with a lot of these movements is that women are joining up specific in particular white women not so sure if this is as true for black women, but they're joining up because they have something that is perceived to be more vulnerable than them that they can advocate for and protect through their advocacy. So this is almost like a, an, I would actually say that once you're burning down cities or you're engaging in this kind of protest or you're engaging in deconstructing society, and I've talked to a lot of these people, they don't seem to have it's not just that they're deconstructing society, it's that they don't seem to have an alternative that makes any sense. Um, when you're doing that, when you're when you're you're sowing so much distrust for society as it stands, without a reasonable alternative, um, it's almost like a, a distortion of that instinct. And I think women do have an instinct to protect those that are more vulnerable than them. I mean, you look throughout history, you see a lot of all the charity work and the uh, and um, the other kind of philanthropic endeavors a lot of times that was headed by women so there is a there's a they have a a desire to protect women do right it's just that it doesn't seem to be 
And it may be that the people who are in charge, who are gaining these million dollar mansions from this activities, don't really. They're just using it to gain million dollar mansions. But the people who they get invested into it, the women who get invested into it, may want to have something that they feel like they can protect. And so what we're seeing is a very, uh, let's say, a poorly thought out expression of an instinct that is itself sort of noble. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, um, one of the things it makes me think of is uh, when we went to ICMI twenty fourteen um, on the on the way back from from that. And that was in Detroit. Uh, I rode Greyhound bus to and from. I didn't I didn't drive up there, and uh, I uh, I wore my A Voice for Men T shirt on the way home on the bus. And uh, I was surrounded by other women. And, and, and in particular, there were two women and one man, actually, um, that kind of kept looking at my shirt. And uh, the guy finally asked me, he's like, what is a voice for men? So I started talking about the, uh, the website, the news articles, the men's rights movement, the issues we address. And one of the first things I mentioned was boys being left behind in education and immediately both of the women who had been just kind of looking at me sideways and stuff became very animated because and 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 we had a very lively discussion the whole rest of the ride um there's a a large recognition among uh, uh some mothers in like the poorer communities and black communities these were two black moms and both of them were like, our sons are having a terrible time. And we talked about everything from the learning style not being dedicated to uh, the, the learning styles of, or the teaching style not being dedicated to the learning styles of boys, uh, to the fact that if kids misbehave in class, there is a tendency to treat that behavior worse when it's a boy's behavior than when it's a girl's behavior. And I was, you know, able to talk about some statistics and everything, but mostly we talked about it from the standpoint of the experiences of these women and their sons in the school system. And the first thing I noticed about it was, like, their main concern, obviously, is their own sons because they're mothers and, and parents are going to be concerned about their children but they were also looking from it from from a standpoint of there's a whole generation of boys experiencing this and how are they going to get into adulthood what's going to be their trajectory in life we talked about the school to prison pipeline and everything and they wanted um you know they wanted not just to fix things in their children's situation but they wanted to see the system fixed for boys they wanted to see the system fixed for girls who were going to grow up and want partners in their lives. Um, and, and then, you know, they get married and they end up marrying someone who had a poor education because the education system fails boys, right? Uh, so they were looking at it from, from several angles. And it was, they wanted to protect, they wanted to improve things and everything. Uh, and, and I know that they did end up... Um, they like they took down they wrote down because they didn't have uh like 
they didn't have smartphones. I didn't even have a smartphone back then. <laughs> um, but uh, they wrote down the website. They wrote down information. I directed them to a few other organizations as well. And uh, so, it, like, they actually had plans to take action on that. And I think a lot of people that get involved, particularly with the Black Lives Matter movement, have a similar um, outlook at, that they're looking at their communities and they are seeing um, not just a level of dysfunction, but a level of conflict between their communities and the police. And they may not have a full picture of, these are all the things that need to be done to improve the situation. But they do have some ideas. And since they have ideas, and their, their goal is to improve the situation, they're going to act on the ideas they have. Uh, and that's, that's how a lot of local... like here in the Dayton metro area like if you expand outward to nearby cities that aren't necessarily Dayton suburbs um, there have been Black Lives Matter marches well there are Black Lives Matter marches in the suburbs here too um, but I like the one that I noticed uh, that was interesting to me was in Troy and that's that's not really a suburb of Dayton it's actually a few miles away and there wasn't like just like in Dayton there wasn't a bunch of violence. There were some dipshits that sh showed up and threw things, but there wasn't a bunch of violence at uh, at the Black Lives Matter marches here, because you had a dialogue between the the people and the cops, and the the people were interested in a dialogue with the cops. And if you look at the areas where the people are not interested with a dialogue in a dialogue with the cops, it's a different set of women. So, you, you know, there are women that do want that, that do want to be protectors, that do want to be uh, improvers of their situation. Um, and I think having the, uh, having the um, overall tolerance that society has for the women who aren't is a hindrance. It's a hurdle that gets in their way. Um, and I guess we're in the same situation. We have, we have a major interest in seeing society improve, seeing things improve for men, seeing things improve for women's capabilities in society, and and moving to, I guess you could say, the next evolution of, of human understanding of itself. And uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of women that would want to get in our way as well. Um, and so there is sort of a little bit of a war between women in this. And the out outcome, I guess, is going to decide be decided by who wins, and how much that social tolerance for women who act without an internal scaffolding of ethics um, affects that battle. They always lose. It just the thing is that it could take generations. Because think about it, there we're we're this one group of women who encourages cooperation. And a sense of, for example, fraternity between men, which eventually will create a society that's more prosperous, safer, peaceful, etc. And one women, one group of women who's constantly instigating destructive narratives and destructive beliefs that destroy society. So as long as those women are in power, they will destroy everything they touch. And as long as there's women who still maintain a desire to encourage cohesion, social cohesion, and cooperation, and um, the, the, the respect for each other's individual dignity and rights, um, 
for example, I, I love how Black Lives Matter, not necessarily the whole thing, but certainly the largest voices in the movement, only seemed to care about George Floyd when he was, when his death could be pinned or was pinned or, you know, if it, whether or not what's going on there on a white cop, on a white male cop. And yet the man did not act like a man who was happy. <laughs> he did, he wasn't having a happy life. He wasn't having a good go of it. So why did you start caring yeah. when it became politically expedient? Why weren't you talking about, you know, black boys failing in school? Why weren't you talking about the fact that black men can't see their children? Why weren't you talking about the level of, um, of, of youth violence and gang violence or the level of sexual abuse of black boys? Why weren't you talking about those things? Like, where were you when we were talking about those things? Because we have spoken about them as a subset of men's issues and recognize that the, a lot of these things affect black men more than other groups of men. So where were you when we talked about men like George Floyd and the misery that, or the, the unhappiness that they have to live with? You know, there's probably a hundred George Floyds that you don't care about because they just blow the, blew their own brains out. You know, so why don't you care about them? Why do you only care about this man? That is a good question, and it, it's one that um, it's one that I've had to ask over and over again in, in arguments with feminists, honestly. And I don't seem to get a good answer. They only care about men when it's expedient for their issues. They don't care about men when men are deeply suffering. And I uh, I have a meme that I created that I uh, occasionally post um, in social media discussions where feminists make this well the reason the suicide suicide rate is so high is because men aren't allowed to cry and you know i it, the meme brings up issues of you know what what how how it is for a man when he's abused how it is for a man when his uh, when he's raped how it is for a man when his children are taken out of his life and he misses them and he's he's worried about them and so on um and it goes right down the line of of men's issues well could we solve this is this issue could we address this problem um can we have some relief of uh related to this circumstance and uh, you know every feminist answer that we get shame on you for thinking about that shame on you for caring about that how dare you expect uh to be to be treated as an equal human being and, and, you know, at the end, the question is, well, what are we supposed to do? And, of course, the only answer feminists have left is learn to cry when bad things happen to women. Right? Yeah. Play a musical instrument and cry when bad things happen to women. And that's basically what they're doing, what they're saying. Boy, do feminists get pissed off when they see that. We aren't at, we, aren't, we don't act like that. You know, oh, yeah, when are, when are men allowed, what are men allowed to cry about? Right? What are they allowed to be upset about? When when are they allowed to ask for help and relief from their circumstances? But not they can't they answer that. Women. Yeah, they're not. You know, and that's why this, this whole this feminist ideology it just comes off as vengeance. These people are looking for retaliation for things that they perceive slights, perceived slights, and you know lies that they've been told about one half of the the population you know they've been lied to 
and they they feel this victimhood and so you know they they don't even know who who victimized them but it must have a penis so we're gonna go after those guys that's all it comes off as you know who it's crazy <laughs> i don't know i i i I don't know how you can expect to have any kind of cohesion with people who look at the at an entire half of the population as if they are all potentially capable of of just doing well, anything. Unfortunately, you, know? you sort of have to draw a line with what you can cohese with because you you can't certain things. You just like, and it's not it's not an ideology. It's not an ism. It's a behavior. Yeah. It's the behavior of not taking responsibility for the power that you have. And, um, you know, somebody mentioned, oh, but what about patriarchy theory? Why why is it that, you know, that's exactly the same as what feminists say? Except what is the behavior of patriarchy that men have to take responsibility for? They had no answer. They couldn't explain to me the specific behavior that feminists say that men need to take responsibility for because there is none. Yeah. There's, yeah, patriarchy... Patriarchy theory is basically just a belief that everything bad in the world exists or is bad because men are in control of it. It doesn't say mm -hmm. how they make it bad. Just, if men were not in control and women were, things wouldn't be so bad. That's patriarchy theory in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the behavior that men can stop to stop, you know, and it's, there's nothing. It's like this eternal, original sin. Whereas what I'm, I'm calling out a specific behavior that women do. They don't take responsibility for their effect on other people. Um, and they don't have a, a philosophy of taking responsibility for their effect on other people. Let's, let's put it that way, because individual women can take responsibility for their effect on other people. But there's no societal level philosophy for that. The, the only philosophy that's really associated with women is feminism. And the only thing that feminism apparently expects women to take responsibility for is feminism, which I... <laughs> okay, so there's no society-wide philosophy of women taking responsibility. And yet, the idea of men taking responsibility for, need, for people who need them to do so is built and baked right into the identity of being a man. That's what it means to be a man. It means you put your own needs aside and you step up and take the bullet or you, you shovel the shit <laughs> or you do what needs to be done for the benefit of others. It's as simple as that. And stoicism is a part of that, is a part of the expectations we place on men to put themselves last and benefit others and take responsibility for the needs of others. And then we turn around and say that stoicism is to blame for uh for men not putting their needs first well yeah it is to blame for that but it's are you going to simultaneously say that men self-sacrifice is toxic masculinity okay well you know let's do that feminists actually that that could work well let's let's just call every time a man sacrifices for someone besides himself toxic masculinity huh I wonder, what's, I wonder what kind of world we'd create. Probably we wouldn't create much of anything because uh, I'm pretty sure that, that that's most, almost entirely innate. So, but anyway, well, there would be like no said, skyscrapers, I can tell you that. Because those skyscrapers are built by men at great risks to their lives. Uh, 
and, and with exposure to materials that are dangerous to them and uh, with exposure to noise that is danger to them, you know, and, and, and at great cost to their bodies. Um, it's not an easy task to build even a, a one-story building. And the amount of labor that goes into the multi-story buildings that we have, this the great um, landscapes of our cities, like that, that is right there, a visual uh, uh, reminder of the human cost of our existence. You know, like we, we spend men to get things. And a lot of times people don't think about it. Um, I think about it because my grandfather worked for Chicago Bridge and Steel. Uh, my grandfather worked in New York. He worked in Mexico. He worked in Colorado. He worked all over the country. He was a welder. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he went up on the, the, the high uh, floors of the, the skyscrapers and, and did welds up there. He did everything. Um, he met my grandmother because he was injured. Grandma was the nurse that took care of him in the hospital uh, when he was recovering from having his leg smashed by a... They, they dropped a concrete... Um, a concrete uh, cylindrical tube on him that... Um, like the size of one of those drainage ditch liners. So we're talking not inches, but feet thick and uh, feet wide and long. Crushed his ankle, broke his leg in several places. And, uh, you know, this was this kind of injury. It's not rare on, on those, uh, those sites. It's actually, you know, slips, trips, falls, having things dropped on you, um, Getting exposed to concrete mix, which burns, um, breathing things in that are that are dangerous to your lungs. That's all a part of of contributing to the building of these great things. And uh, like I'm I'm sitting here right now, um, about a foot and a half away from one of his welder masks that I keep next to me to remind me uh, of that connection. Like men sacrifice themselves to make civilization and we spend men to buy civilization as a society mm -hmm. and and our society our civilization men included have been okay with that throughout history um we used to appreciate it right our whole society used to appreciate it if you look at the empire state building there is somewhere in that building, and I've never gotten to visit it, so I've never gotten to see it, but there's a plaque that has the names of the men that worked on that building. And today we don't, we don't have that level of appreciation. You would see back in the day um, people recognizing those sacrifices. Right? Like recognizing on Memorial Day that it's almost majority men yeah. who sacrifice in war? Yeah, mm -hmm. to the point where we can probably safely omit a lot of the female sacrifice. Maybe just the footnote. Yeah, some women died. Like I think ten women died. <laughs> There's yeah. more than that, but what's different between men and women in terms of um, Memorial Day 
and especially with regard to the United States, is most of the men who died died in circumstances that they 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 went into knowing that they were uh, at at extreme risk, right? They went into battle and died. Like now, there was Pearl Harbor. There were men and women who died at Pearl Harbor. There were men and women who died in other circumstances. Uh, hospital ships got attacked and things like that. But men who went into combat zones um, to go into combat, women didn't do that part, right? That's the difference. And our country considered drafting women for support positions, but didn't because they had enough people, enough women in support positions that they didn't have to. Um, but cannon fodder is a different story, right? They needed a small number of women for those support positions. They needed an unthinkable number of men for the cannon fodder positions, and that is why men were drafted. They, they, to this day, right, it's, you know, you hear feminists talk about, it's the current year, why haven't we solved this problem or that problem? It's the current year, it's 2021, and we are still arguing over the, the validity of the idea of adding women to the draft treating women equally in terms of disposability. Right? We only use men for cannon fodder. We don't use women for yeah. cannon fodder. And even after a hundred years of overt feminist activism and two hundred years of covert feminist activism, we still live in a society where we are willing to use men as cannon fodder. But the idea of using women as cannon fodder can be discussed as a repugnant idea. Yeah, it's unbelievable. You can't have equality if, quite simply, you aren't willing to expend men as the way, or expend women the way you expend men. And I don't know if we are capable of doing that as a society. So we have to contend with that. We can't just hide it under the rug and we can't just pretend that men didn't allow women to be expendable because they had contempt for them. That's absolute nonsense. No. They didn't allow women to have con content or uh, to be expendable because they valued women more than themselves, which is true about all of human history, which is why feminism didn't invent men caring about women in 1960s. And I find it hilarious to listen to these conversations about, oh, women were excluded from this, that, and the other. And I'm like, these professions in the past, literally, you're, you're exactly right. When you put it like this, they expended men's lives to achieve the things that they did. So men were expended like you expend a resource, mm -hmm. like you expend cattle, ladies. That is the situation of men throughout history. They were a resource that you could apply to a problem and if they died in the process of solving it that was good that could be considered a success you cannot do that with women so anything and the, and the bigger the problems are the bigger the recognition you get so if you if this is the and the more likely you're gonna have to use an expendable class to solve it which means that men will get more recognition throughout history because they were solving, with their blood, problems that could not be solved unless you had an expendable class to solve them. 
And then women, like feminists, but other women as well, look back through history and look at the process of men being used as, 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 a, as a blood sacrifice for problems we thought we couldn't solve other, any other way. They look at that and they see privilege. And, and they see it because they only see the men that survived the process. You know, like, uh, I'm thinking uh, women uh, say that, oh, yeah, well, what about the, the female this, that, and the other, this female general or the female whatever. Well, you realize that generals didn't start out generals. They started out as lieutenants often and then moved up the ranks, and lieutenants have the highest rate of, of death in a war. So they ran the gauntlet. You see that general? It's because there's probably a couple, you know, depending on the war, as much as a couple thousand lieutenants who never made it, many of whom are dead. So if, lady, if you want to be the lieutenant that dies, you know, lieutenant number 968, that's dead, go ahead. You know, and, and until you can accept 50% um, dead women, you are not going to get 50% female generals. That's that is that is that is the hard truth of reality, and people today just don't want to accept it. They want to live in this little fairy tale bubble where they continue to assert, or or to live by the hard harsh truth. So we expend men in a different way now. We just blame them. So we strip their social uh, acceptance from them. That's how we expend men. This is how they do it. This is how they so they still treat men as expendable. And the way that we've done throughout all of human history, but they're in a little bubble of thinking that that's somehow equality. They're creating this strict gender role between those that they blame, men, and everybody else, and somehow that's gender fluidity, even though it's absolutely black and white gender binary. And I just, it's like, it drives me nuts. Just watch them tooling around, lying to themselves. I don't know if anybody else is like driven nuts by that, but it's just, especially when they, when they think that they have some kind of insight to anything mm -hmm. <laughs> and and they and and they're so driven by their own compulsions and their own unexamined gender roles yeah i ah so i i honestly with 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 regard to feminists and i think even a lot of um non-feminist women even some anti-feminist women we we have this issue of them having ways in which they want to see society advance um, but they want, they don't want to advance men's interests and human interest in men along with that. So they're, they're wanting to maintain the level of male disposability that we have always uh, allowed in our society. Um, and the level of valuation of women that we have always allowed in our society. Um, the, the, polar opposite of disposability right and uh but they want to change the way men and women are treated well you can't change the way men, men and women are treated without taking women off of the pedestal the veneration pedestal and and bringing them down to a level of humanity and up to a level of humanity where we recognize women's agency and we recognize that women can be, women can only be heroic if they learn some level of self-sacrifice again. And we recognize men's human value and we stop treating them as uniquely disposable. 
And I think our next evolution in, as, as a species can't happen until we take that polarity and we bring the two poles closer together so that instead of having a society where men are disposable and women are gold, we have a society where men are human and women are human and it's a tragedy to treat anyone as disposable. And, yeah. and it is a, a tragedy to fail to recognize anyone's agency and, and to overvalue anyone to the point where we deflect their agency to another person and make other people responsible for them just because of who they are and, and not because of any level of actual need or vulnerability. Uh, we have to yeah. be able to, to get that back. And both sexes have to be able to, on some level, be um, disposable for their communities in extreme circumstances. But both sexes, neither sex should be disposable all the time. Yeah. And that's going to be that's going to be a huge challenge because it's going to mean increasing uh, female disposability from less than zero to something above zero and taking men's disposability down from 100 percent to something closer to that same number that we would be aiming for uh, with women. Yeah. And, and that's the problem with, uh, you know, recognizing women's agency is that, well, then they have to use it, you know, <laughs> and then it's all out on display. You have the agency. Why aren't you using it? No. You know what I mean? I, I, just, I hope we get there, but. <laughs> well, it's going to be, it's going to take a change of, like, I, I, I say this every week now. This is going to take a change of attitude among women. Because men aren't going to give up their disposability if they're trying to protect women, right? Um, yeah. yeah. They're, they're going to see it as their responsibility to be disposable. And mm -hmm. if, if women can't communicate we are willing to step up. We are willing to... Um, we don't have to become men. But we would like to see men and women be recognized as equally human. And, and we w are willing to step up and, and fill more of a role of responsibility. And take some of the burden off the shoulders of men. If women can do that, then men will, will not feel like they have to carry everything. And then yeah. they will be willing to give up the uh, the, the stoicism uh, in the face of disposability when it's dysfunctional. Yeah. Um, other, one last thing that I'll say, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna bow up for some supper. Um, when we treat men as having value, the more their inherent instincts to develop like this this social value. The social value for cooperation comes out. So the less expendable they are, the more prosperous our society becomes. And more intellectually advanced and philosophically advanced and artistically advanced and technologically advanced. Because that desire to take risks is no longer being put into being expendable. It's now being put into something else. And if that something else isn't violence, then what is it? It's creativity. Yeah. It would be great to see humanity start uh, turning away from violence and relying on creativity. Um, a true 
renaissance as opposed to valuing con uh, uh, conquering uh, of each other that we would value conquering our problems um, but uh, I think we're a long way from that but I think we can get there yeah and again though we we would have to to get that recognition among women women have to start valuing men and not just as what men can do for women but as human beings who are interesting and important and uh, have a right to be valued because they exist the same way that women do yeah um, if, if we have said everything we're going to say, I think I'm going to take us into the Super Chats. Right. Uh, we have Meredith G. gave us four ninety nine and said, uh, Shekels for the internet, Bill. Have a good show, and thanks for the great discussion. I'll catch it later. Uh, Gary Thomas gave us $10 and said, Wanda from WandaVision on Disney Plus is the perfect example of what you guys are talking about. She kidnapped and tortured an entire town, and in the end, she was still portrayed as the good guy. That sounds awful. Sounds like Disney, though. Mm -hmm. God, I hate Disney. <laughs> uh, Anth Bobo gave us $5 Canadian and said, Thank you guys for being on the right side of women. <laughs> I, we hope so. <laughs> We're, we are working at it, and uh, I, I, I think, honestly, I don't know how um, how to be anything else, so it, it feels weird being thanked for it, but this is, uh, you know, my, my heroes in my uh, circle of people that I know are all like this, recognizing the value of people first not caring about gender in relation to that. And then when we look at political issues, we look at it from the standpoint of human value and human rights and respect for uh, individual agency. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard sometimes to understand uh, people who don't. Uh, yeah, they... <laughs> like aliens I, I, I don't and this is why I have a hard time forming like relationships with people because you know once you get to a certain point in the conversation you 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 get an understanding of what the other person like how they how they kind of think you know when you start to bring up things and they they you know look at you sideways it's like okay all right well <laughs> all right we <laughs> This one might be a dud, you know, but it it's <sighs> having a difference in your beliefs shouldn't be something that precludes you from having a friendship with another person. I think that that shouldn't have to be said, but I think a lot of people don't think that way. And that's why there are these lines that are just drawn you know, when when people like cancel each other because of who they voted for, right. and you know, these are your family. Sometimes, even you know, I I don't know if if we're too divided or if there is is actually some hope for like change. This the social cohesion. I would love to see it happen. I uh, I don't know. I'm just a little bit pessimistic. 
when it comes to that. But I know it has to start with with uh, a sp- like I said a spread among women of recognizing that people can think differently mm-hmm. and believe different things and even be blind to things that you see and still be human. Yeah. Right. Even when I get really heated in arguments with feminists, um, I, a lot of it comes out of frustration with recognizing the human element of it. Mm-hmm. Here is a person that um, I'm looking at this person and I'm looking at the behavior of this person and they're willfully blinding themselves to something that is important and that could change their lives for the better if they would recognize it and take it into consideration and it would change the lives of everyone around them everyone they touch basically in some way or another for the better if they just would relax their uh their their tension around that concept and yeah it just it it is like, that's an enraging thing for me when people willfully injure themselves like that, right? And the people around them, too. Um, but it's still recognition of the human person and the agency that they have to make those decisions for themselves uh, and, you know, holding that person responsible. When you start thinking about it as um, these entities are evil and they're not human, you lose sight of the whole reason why we have politics in the first place. Right. Like, that's supposed right. to be the, a way to deal. It's a sociological thing. How do you deal with human issues? Politics, unfortunately. And politics has the imperfection of us forgetting that the people on the other side of the politics are people. Right. Right. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter what somebody thinks. I, I don't think that there is anything that someone could do that would make them irredeemable you know um everyone we are all at different stages in our lives at different points of of our learning and our understanding of certain things you know i think everybody would do well to go into every situation knowing that listen i don't know everything about this so i'm gonna form this is this is my opinion for right now but unless I get some new information, you know, that that's the only thing that's going to make me change my mind, you know, but we don't leave ourselves open enough to new information, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got to be able to recognize there are ways of thinking that it, just like there are ways of driving that are reckless, there are ways of thinking that are reckless. Like, uh Santa Claus mentioned CRT, uh, critical race theory, and critical theory from which that is drawn. Like, that way of thinking is very reckless. It's a dehumanization manner of thinking. When you dehumanize people um, in order to justify to yourself your opposition to their humanity, uh, your opposition to their welfare um, as as a person, um... It 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 destroys both yourself uh, as a as a rational person. It destroys your ability to to form connections in your community um, just at at will. 
uh, and, and it also creates a pathway for your community that is very dangerous, that leads to death and destruction. And uh, I, I think one of the biggest things we have to combat is we have a tendency, because of our history as a, as a species of tribalistic warfare, uh, to, to rely on dehumanization and uh, critical, critical thinking. Not critical thought, right? But critical theory thinking. Um, that is exactly the opposite, actually, of critical thought. It's very irrational in, a, in, a, in its own way. Uh, to where we genuinely objectify the other in order to uh, to excuse a level of hatred and uh, a level of malice that we would never engage in if we didn't first mentally erase their humanity. Uh, so I probably our biggest battle in in the next like our biggest battle in the next in this generation of um, uh, political fights, is going to be to get people to stop doing that. Right? That's going to be... That's a mountain to climb. And we can... Like I said, we can do it. Uh, it it's going to take a lot of discussion. And it's going to take a lot of pushing. And probably yeah. women are going to be the ones pushing that. Women are going to be the ones coming along saying, Hey, you know, this is... This is how we end up with... Uh, mass murder. By our governments. By, by taking the pathway that this type of thinking takes us down. And here's what's wrong with it. And here's why it leads down that path. Here's the flaws in this, this way of thinking. Let's go a different direction. That would right. be better for humanity. Um, and and that's, that's what we have to do. So. And right, honestly. I, I, I think that's going to be on all women. But obviously, it's going to be the mem the women of the anti-SJW spectrum um, that that are the catalyst. Yeah, I agree. You know, and uh, you know, I, I think too is what needs to happen is you know we're dealing with a bunch of people that have been taught what to think; they haven't been taught how to think. So I think part of this discussion is really going to have to be opening these people's eyes and, you know, point back to history. Uh, in the 1930s, it wasn't such a nice time for people who didn't agree with a certain section of, of the government. And, uh, you know, we, we know what happened to those people. And we're heading right down the same path. Yeah. Yep. So... so. I would say, you know, we have most, I, I think most of our listeners are male, but we do have female listeners. And so just speaking to everybody, but in particular speaking to the female listeners, like that's my charge to you, is uh, spread the understanding that um, everyone is human, right? And that everyone should be equally valued. Um, look into critical race theory and look into what's wrong with critical race theory and critical theory behind critical race theory is basically the same thing it's just instead of race it's usually gender or uh, uh, economic class that they're that they're applying it to but look at it and compare it uh, to the 
the attitudes that led to the Holocaust and the Holomador, or Holomador, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, I've always only just read it, um, but the Ukrainian famine, uh, and, uh, and all of the different types of genocides and politicides that have happened, and, and consider, you know, how do we get people to stop this? What can we get people to understand that will get them off that pathway of thinking? And on to a more uh, progressive, really, for human, real human progress way of thinking about each other. Um, so that's my, uh, uh, that's my charge to you. And, and I will work on it and you work on it. Um, Lord of Swarm gave us $2 and said the world runs on, quote, toxic masculinity, end quote. And that's kind of true. Feminists don't differentiate between say, stoicism that, uh, that men exercise in the course of achieving something important and necessary versus stoicism that prevents a man from going to the, the hospital when he's broken his leg because he feels like he's not being tough enough uh, and manly enough, right? And that stoicism exists, although they will accuse all men who don't get medical treatment for, for whatever is broken uh, of being that guy when there is also the guy who doesn't get medical treatment for his broken leg because nobody will help him or nobody believes his leg is broken or nobody thinks it matters because he's a man. Uh, so feminists need some nuance. Like that's, that's one of the, the, uh, the problems with closing your head to other people's humanity. You have to recognize um, not every man who is being stoic at, at any given moment is is uh, actually being stoic. Right. <laughs> there could be a very, very deep fire burning somewhere within that guy, and the wrong person's going to say the wrong thing, and then you'll really see, if you want to see some toxic masculinity, but it's not even that, obviously. It's just a natural reaction to a, a, a charged emotional situation. And again, everyone is human. Like, we, that should be okay. It, not that it should be okay, right? You, you shouldn't react with violence. But I can understand. Yeah. I can, you know, and, and I think we all should be allowed to have that, that, that license. You know what I'm saying? To react naturally. It's like... Like at my job, you know what I mean? I, I have a very foul mouth, okay? I <laughs> I just do. That's how I talk, okay? <laughs> I can't help it. It's just kind of natural to me, you know? But I understand that in my work environment, it's not really going to be acceptable. But, you know, when I... On, on the rare occasions when it does happen and I get chastised or, or you know, told to, you know, watch your mouth... Yeah. Like I I feel like I feel like I'm being violated. You know what I mean? Because I'm just expressing myself naturally how you know what works for me. But you know, it's it's not always <laughs> it's not always uh business appropriate, let's say. So Yeah, I I have learned cuz in my work environments like that too, you can't there are people in my work environment who will kind of feel slapped if they hear a cuss word, right? Mm. Um, and then there are people in my work environment whose um, 
intellectual capabilities and psychological capabilities and everything are like parallel to uh, children. They're not the same. Um, there's a there's a big difference between intellectually disabled adults and children, but there are commonalities as well, right? So I have to be careful. I've learned to say it when when something frustrates me or a, a circumstance you know hits me to the point where I start to slip, um, it's it's uh, for crying out loud. <laughs> so, for crying out loud, because <laughs> uh, cause you can say for crying out loud, and uh, you know it's uh, because it's also a religious environment. We have cheese pizza, um, cheese and rice. Yeah, <laughs> you know uh, anything but things that are going to uh, feel like an attack to somebody else. You just yeah. you just kind of learn to to deal with it like you would if you were um, raising a child and and you wanted to be careful that the child doesn't pipe up singing the f word in in a nonsensical song in the middle of the grocery store at top volume in front of little old ladies that are going to give you the hairy eyeball not that that ever happened to me um <laughs> but <laughs> i do know somebody that that happened to actually uh, oh no yeah <laughs> but in any case because uh, it's a funny sounding word right cuss words a lot of cuss words are funny funny sounding words but you, you just accommodate people because they're people. And, and, you know, again, it comes back to respect for, for other people's humanity. And you hope right. that other people will accommodate you. And like, okay, you know, human beings screw up sometimes. And, and you have to be able to uh, treat the screw-up proportionally to, you know, other screw-ups that could happen and stuff like that. So, yeah, you, you used right. a bad word in front of the wrong person. Um they shouldn't be scandalized and treat you like, you know, you just murdered babies in front of them. Um, you just yeah. said a word, right? Uh, so so there's there's both ends of that. It's hard to uh it, it's hard to get people to, to, to do that. But it's like that's probably like I said, that's our big our next big hurdle as a as a species is to get that level of recognition of people's humanity. Um Personally, I value the entire English language from the yes. best to the worst of it. There are parts of it I don't like as much, uh, and there are parts of it I even find distasteful, just like there's some foods you find distasteful. But all of it has a purpose, and the idea that we take some of it and, and say, well, this part of it is uh, you're a bad person if you access and use this part of it... Um, no matter what the circumstance or why you did it, uh, that's that's stupid. Uh, which is one of those words that I get t told now is a bad word. Stupid is a bad word now. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, it's not a bad word. It's 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 a description for you know a characteristic. We'll deal right. with it. Sometimes oh. it's accurate. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's accurate. Hating people is stupid. Um, Albatross gave us five dollars and said, "How do you unlearn learned helplessness?" And the answer to that is baby steps, um, yeah. but but also occasional giant leaps and bounds. A good example of that is learning to ride a bicycle. So little kids start out a lot of times. You start out with a little big wheel, right? A tricycle, um, one of those one of those items that you had to work your butt off to flip over, right? You couldn't fall over in it if you tried. Um, and and then you move up. 
you step up to a bicycle with training wheels. And the training wheels don't keep you from falling over, but they make it a lot harder for you to fall over. They make it a lot easier for you to balance. And your your mom or dad, usually dads, I, I noticed that this is mostly a dad thing, kind of tracks how you ride your bicycle and, and how frequently you ride fast enough that the training wheels, which are usually slightly higher up from the ground, um, unless you're leaning to the side and then, then the training wheel engages. Uh, so when the training wheels almost never touch the ground, right, dad takes them off, you know, and uh, then of course you're terrified. You're just, I can't ride this without training wheels. I've never ridden a bike without training wheels before. And so your dad works with you or your mom works with you or your big brother or big sister. Well, let's try it. I'll hold on to the bike. I'll hold on to the seat so you don't fall over. And eventually you're riding fast enough they can't keep up and they let go and you go down the street without your training wheels. And that's that's one way that people unlearn learned helplessness. Um, it's not the only way, uh, but it is one way. So you get people, you encourage people around you that have learned helplessness to try small things and have small successes. And every success they have, you point out, you did that. See, you did it. It was all you. I wasn't there. I didn't do this for you. You did it yourself. And you succeeded. You had a victory and, a, and a, an achievement. And each little achievement and, and each step toward bigger and bigger achievements takes the person out of the mentality of learned helplessness and brings them into a mentality of pride in their achievements and excitement about being able to exercise their own personal agency. They won't talk about it in those terms. They'll just demonstrate it by doing more and more things. And uh, so that's basically what you do with people. You encourage them to take those baby steps and you support their um, their courage in, in stepping forward. And then you, uh, you basically draw their attention to where they were able to achieve things uh, independently of your assistance and independently of your support. Uh, and uh, so that they get uh, a handle on the fact that they do have that capacity. And it, positive, it, it helps positive, a lot. Positive reinforcement. Yep, positive reinforcement. And if it's an individual trying to, to get that for themselves, um, it's the same thing. You know, you look at the job and you see the entire world. But forget about the entire world. Look at your front porch. And you take the initiative on your own front porch. Take the initiative to to handle small problems that are in your own environment. And then work your way toward bigger and bigger ones. You know, and eventually you'll find that uh, you forgot about the training wheels. And you're doing tricks on your bike. And you're excited about that. So... Uh, Albatross gave us $5 and said... Oh, wait, I just read that one. I Oh, it's unclicking all of my clicked. Uh, like, I click them and the, the, it goes from being uh, reload this to having a little check mark and it darkens it and it just undid all of them. We are at... Flash the Mystic gave us $10 and this is our last super chat. 
Said, Your brigade reminds me of this comic series I, quote, stumbled upon called Femforce. Uh, you still in your seats? Good, because this was good news. Actual equality without turning men into femwusses. It sounds like an interesting comic series. Yeah. So, I, I would be interested in actually seeing that. I might start searching for Femforce to find out what it's like. But hopefully, uh, you know, we can achieve something where um, we get actual equality. My idea of actual equality in society isn't men and women having everything the same. It's <laughs> men and women being recognized as equally human with equal human rights under the law and under policy so that we don't use law and policy to transfer responsibility for women's choices to men. Right. If we can do that, everything else will follow. Even if men and women don't take the same pathways in life and don't do the same things uh, and don't value the same things in the same way, as long as we value each other equally as human beings, that's really what we need. And as long as we guide our law and policy with that as a primary guide, so that we're not transferring responsibility from women to men when women make decisions. Um, and, and we're not denying men the care and consideration that women get under the law. Um, everything else will follow. Uh, Lord of Swarm gave us $5. We have one more super chat. And said, Hannah, after you're done cleaning your room, take care of your front porch. Exactly. Exactly. So there we go. <laughs> Hail Lobster. <laughs> and with that, I will thank my two co-hosts, although Allison won't hear me because she's not here anymore, for uh, for the spicy sausage. We had a good spicy sausage tonight. Uh, quite flavorful. Um, and I will thank all of our listeners. We didn't have to stick out a long sausage because we stuffed as much into this one as we possibly could in an hour. And... Uh, and a half to two hours here. We got uh, the super chats took us up to about two hours. And uh, I will I will see our uh, our patrons in the after show where we will sort of continue the discussion um, with a look at the feminist pick me narrative. And uh, the the title of this one is uh, the the snake that swallows its own bullshit. So <laughs> so yeah. Um, <laughs> and if you want to see how to get into, um, to, to get into the after show and participate in that kind of, uh, discussion, we have a lot of interesting discussions like that, uh, go to Feed the Badger and check it out, and then it, it will give you a full description of everything you need to do, and I don't have that description in front of me, so I'm not gonna, like, make shit up about us and try to, try to fake it. So, uh, thank you all. Thanks to everybody who works in the background to make HBR talk happen, and good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.